Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the In Technology podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. And welcome to today's episode of What That Means with Camille. Today, we are going to talk about what that means, indigenous data sovereignty. I have three people with me today. We have Don Nafis, who's an anthropologist and senior research scientist at Intel Labs. We have Bobby Marr, who's member of the Mayam Nayiri Wingara Indigenous Data Sovereignty Collective in Australia, joining us from Australia. And we have Karaitiana Tairu, who is part of the Maori, well, he's a Maori indigenous data specialist joining us all the way from New Zealand. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we're going to have to start the old-fashioned way and just ask one of you to define indigenous data sovereignty. Sure, I'm happy to kick it off. So I just want to acknowledge that I'm calling in from the traditional lands here of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples in Canberra. Um, and just to pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, so the way in which we define Indigenous data sovereignty is the right uh, of Indigenous peoples to govern the collection, ownership and application of data about Indigenous communities, peoples, lands and resources. Thank you. So my first question is, why does this need to be looked at or considered differently than collecting data of any other human being? Why, why is there even a term Indigenous data sovereignty? Yeah, I think, Camille, like historically for Indigenous peoples, data has been used, it's been weaponized against us. So it's been used as a mechanism to exclude us, to portray us in a very deficits and problematic lens um, we have been invisible really in the production and the reuse of data about us so when we think about data collection is this kind of amplified in the world of artificial intelligence and uh, just internet collection of large quantities of data has this always been an issue or is it a more recent issue uh, yeah, it's, it's always been an issue, but I think traditionally, at least for Māori, it's not been an issue that's been discussed because we've always been um, fighting for social inequities, health inequities, getting land back, and basically fighting racism in the system. And they're all things that you can physically see, um, things that you deal with every day. Yet when it comes to data, it's not something you really see or know about. Um, unless you work in the digital area. So it hasn't really been an issue at the forefront for Māori uh, up until about maybe four years ago. So one of the things that Bobby's mentioned to me in prior conversation is it's not just about you know collection of data and stewardship of data. It's about even the sort of constructs that the data is being looked at. Um, and I'm wondering if you guys can go into a little bit more detail on that. Because, and I'll just a little bit more, just to kind of you know 
kick that off is I think a lot of people in the tech world, at least, are very familiar with, as they're building learning models in AI, to be careful about bias and introducing bias. And so I think we're looking at this and taking it kind of another layer down. So I want to help people understand why that's not maybe enough. Yes. So from um, the Australian perspective, Professor Maggie Walter has constantly, you know, written about and spoken about how data and the use of data sets sort of to inform public policy is often used, um, she refers to it as the 5D data. So what she's talking about is differences, deprivation, dysfunctional, disadvantage and disparity. So data that represents those. And again, she also uses this term of badder data, which is about blaming. It's about aggregating the the data, decontextualizing the data. It's using deficits data and um, it's restricted access. So we as Indigenous peoples are not able to access that data. In particular, this thing around aggregating the data is really um, problematic because as First Nations people here in Australia, we are very diverse within our own nations. Um, And so within that diversity, we will have different, um, you know, life worlds, we'll have different values um, and priorities. That is actually not taken into account then when particular policies and strategies are actually being developed and being implemented as a way of helping Indigenous peoples. It's not actually telling the true story of who we are as First Nations people in Australia. Karai Tiano, do you have a take on that? An example for New Zealand Māori is with the COVID-19 um, rollout of immunisation there's a deep mistrust by Māori populations of the health system. Um, There's been generations of discrimination. So as our tribal groups wanted to use health data to visit communities that needed the COVID rollout, um, the Ministry of Health in New Zealand basically said, no, you can't have it. So it ended up going to the High Court, and the High Court said that um, the Ministry of Health must reevaluate their decision to provide iwi or the tribes the data. Um, because in New Zealand, we um, have a constitutional document called the, the Treaty of Waitangi, and that gives a number of protection mechanisms to Māori, including to resources, which include data. So if we had access to that data early, we could have um, basically saved a number of Māori lives and improved the health of a number of Māori communities. So you're saying that in this example, there's maybe health information or health data collected about a certain population, or at least the the data is segmented by various kinds of, I guess we could call them arbitrary or real um, segmentations or classifications of people. And in this case, then the actual communities where the data is gathered don't no longer have access to the data that's collected? That's correct. It's um, um, hosted by the New Zealand government. And despite the government having access to the data and knowing which data is Māori and which data is not Māori, it's not shared with community providers to enhance the communities. 
So another, I guess, question is there's different kinds of privacy regulations when it comes to data that we see around the world. And I know that those are really not orchestrated or standardized globally, but there's things in place, like, for example, in the EU GDPR, sort of a general privacy regulation for individuals. Is this similar or is there a kind of a different lens to look at this? Sure. So in New Zealand, we have our own um, privacy laws. And again, we have the Titiriti or Waitangi, the, the constitutional documents, which also say that the government must co-govern and co-design with Māori. Now, if they did that with data, then all the um, data sovereignty principles, Indigenous or Māori principles, would then be recognised and then we would be able to share and fight inequities with um, especially health data, but all data in general. But one of the things, too, that you guys were talking about the other day is, well, one thing you were saying, Karaitiana, is this notion of data belonging to an individual is kind of maybe very, I don't know if the right word is westernized, but culturally specific and not specific to Maori. I'm wondering if you can elaborate that on that a little bit. Sure. So prior to colonisation, everything was communally owned. and There was no one person owned something. We, we have a concept called kaitiakitanga, which means that you're the guardian of a resource. And it's your role to make sure that resource is looked after and in better condition or more healthier than when you got it for the next generation. So in terms of data, we have tribal ownership of data. And then only some data would be considered personal data, and that could be your personal health record. But then from a a tribal perspective, sharing um, high-level data is acceptable from a Māori perspective. And then one of the other kind of questions I think, Bobby, you were talking about this too, was you're saying the categorization of deficit and viewing a population Asking even the way that you structure an experiment or a questionnaire or a survey or something, or the way that you're looking at information or cutting data is going to then put a certain population in deficit that maybe those questions themselves are biased inherently by the culture who's asking them. I'm wondering if you can talk about that more. Yeah, I guess the way in which... um you know, what we refer to as administrative data. So it's our national statistical offices that run these national surveys when they are asking Indigenous peoples questions within that survey. It's it's very much framed from a, a Western lens. You know, there, there actually has been no Indigenous input into, you know, the relevance of that question why that question is even being asked. And I guess one of the issues around then the analysis is that we are constantly then being compared to the non-Indigenous population where we have very different worldviews and um, perspectives and priorities. So it's never going to come from a strengths-based perspective. So can you give an example of how something would look different possibly, if that perspective were taken into account? So we have a national study here for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it's called the My Kauai Study. And it's a, it's a cohort study that has been set up. 
The director of that study is Professor Ray Lovett. And this uh, is, is the first of its kind in Australia. And it's the actual development phase of the study kind of included going out to particular community groups to ask them questions around culture and cultural expressions. It's a health and well-being survey that actually is asking about cultural elements, um, which is really important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so through this study, we will be able to actually do analysis and look at our own population to better understand health and well-being and what the relationship of culture has to do with these um, particular outputs and outcomes. Yeah, that that is interesting. And Don, from your perspective, kind of embedded in a major technology company, I'm wondering how you look at applying Paraitiana and Bobby's input. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is that the state of the art, particularly with responsible AI, which is where I do the bulk of my work, is that it's not. And that's a real problem, right? Um, so the situation I see today is one where my engineering colleagues, you know, sort of across companies as well as in my own, you know, they'll be able to say, sure, we can look at this and that data set and, you know, parse it by demographic categories. But that extra step that shouldn't be extra at all that both Bobby and Cartagena are talking about to then ask, wait, why and how is this data being collected at all? By whom and to what ends? Those questions get really hard really fast. And either they're sort of pushed down the, you know, down the chain, we don't want to think about them, or somehow it's magically too hard when you ask the more fundamental question. And I, I just see constant evidence of it getting skirted around. And the very real issue of who is data for is just so darn hard to ask. And I think especially when you're talking about issues of sovereignty, where there is both a cultural rights as well as, in many cases, legal rights here, <laughs> that get me- gets messy quickly. So is this kind of, I, I have to ask about sort of a framework, I guess, for this, because I'm thinking about all different kinds of people who whose data is collected that can then be broken down by all different sorts of any kind of category you can think of. I think typically by female, male breakdown, um, at least in the United States, a lot of the breakdown is by race, right? Slash ethnicity, I'll say. There's other ways that people break it down by education level, by income level. Those are some just common ones that I've seen in data. And I'm wondering, in this case, you're saying there is you know, a group of people indigenous people or Maori people in this case, who want the right to govern and manage access to that data um, and, and have access themselves to the data that's collected and, and maybe even participate in the questions being asked and the segmentation that's being done. How does that apply to kind of broader humanity? You know, if you're breaking data down by sex or gender, then how do you give that same kind of uh, management or control to people who are not in a collective or a group that's self-defined? I think in terms of Indigenous peoples, we 
all belong to community collectives and groups. So I guess the question would be how to apply those same principles to non-Indigenous peoples. But just my personal opinion is that from a Western perspective, those community groups don't exist and aren't applicable. So from my Western genealogical connections, I wouldn't want community groups having access to my data. But I'm more than happy from a Māori perspective for my Māori community groups to have access because that's normal for me. Bobby, do you have a similar perspective? Yeah, I, I think for many people, like for myself, I would feel very much the same way. Like I am living off of country, do you know? I'm certainly not connected physically. So, yeah, definitely. That's very interesting. And also kind of your point, Karaitiana, that it's not applicable. This concept of data belonging to a collective is not necessarily applicable outside of Indigenous communities. I'm sure there may be an example that we're not thinking of, but... I mean, and I can jump in in there and say there there are a couple of exceptions to that rule. I, I work in places where environmental health is a real problem in the U.S., um, and that is one example where actually people do want data pooled locally for a particular reason, because there's a collective harm happening. So they'll kind of get past all the other constraints um, to sort of create that collectivity. But no, it does not fall, as everyone else here is saying, it doesn't fall along the traditional sociological demographic categories. It's not about that at that point. So it's, it's almost like a self-identified collective is kind of where that line is drawn. I'm trying to figure out like how you apply this in technology, because um, is it just something that you apply then to the indigenous community that's requesting, or is it something that you are trying to apply more broadly? And if so, how do you understand the definition of a collective and how do people opt into that? So um, in New Zealand, Māori society is made from what you would call a tribe. And a tribe consists of a number of what you'd call clans. And clans are made up of a number of families. So in New Zealand, the, the way to achieve Māori data sovereignty in this particular area would be to use the tribal names, the clan names, and the geographic locations um, names. And then for people to be able to opt out, every Māori person is born with that biological connection, but some don't choose to be Māori. Giving people the opt-out opportunity would um, certainly um, solve that issue and allow the communities to access the data. Indigenous peoples are not a singular group of people, this applies to any group of people, right? But you're saying specific, you know, there's multiple different tribes, as you said. And so talk about how the tribes are working together on this call for data sovereignty and then how you reconcile kind of those differences among the different people that, that are in the collective together. Uh, in New Zealand, we have, I think we have about 115 different tribes Many of those tribes have formed a like a, a group who consult with the government. So part of that group has a data sovereignty group. Uh, but overall, most most tribes want the same things. We want inequities to be rectified within health, education, and the justice system throughout everything. So it's not really too difficult. The, the issues would be when the clans want 
um, specific data is very, very different throughout the whole country. So my primary um, geographical location, the clan there, they want data about the water system, um, about the ocean. That's where we live and get our food from. Yet another clan in the top of the New Zealand live in the central forests. So their, their data needs to be very different because they don't have an ocean. Um, they don't have the water issues that we have. Yeah, and in here, in like over here in Australia, like our IDS principles only really came into effect in 2018. So we're now at the stage where we're really wanting to reach more broadly um, and work with communities and with peak organisations who are representing communities to then see, well, how are these principles being, um, how can they start to be operationalised? So certain elements may already be in effect. Um, and again, it's about like the role that Indigenous data governance plays with these principles. So yeah, it's, it is really coming thick and fast for us. And we're only a very small collective um, within the Mayamnari Wingara collective. And so we're predominantly, um, you know, academics working in different institutions around Australia as well. Is there any big topic within the topic of Indigenous data sovereignty that we've not covered in this conversation? One of the things that I just wanted to highlight I am part of GIDA, which is the Global Indigenous Data Alliance. That was formed, I think, in 2019. And they also developed, sort of as a collective, they developed some principles called the CARE Principles. So there there are a few papers that have been written by the collective. Stephanie Russo Carroll is from the US and she would have been the main, like the first author of those. But really what it's acknowledging are that in relation to kind of more of the the open data spaces and the big data spaces, there is this focus on what is known as the FAIR principles. So that sort of translates to findable, accessible, um, interoperable and reusable. But these principles are quite data-centric. And then when we're thinking about Indigenous peoples, you know, we come from this this place of being people-centric and purpose-centric. So the care principles really break down to like the collective benefit, uh, the authority to control, the responsibility, and then ethics in relation to data practices. I really appreciate the conversation and it's been really educational and informative to me. I had not heard of Indigenous data sovereignty and now I see it as like an absolute imperative that everybody should know about in the tech world. So thank you so much for giving us an introduction to it. Stay tuned for the next episode of In Technology and follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation.